Hi, Stably. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm a little stressed. Okay. Um, we're building an addition to the house. Oh, uh, I see. It's a new garage because uh, the existing garage is full now. So we're, we're building a new garage. Okay. I mean, that's probably important. Do you, you, you built that sub basement, right? Yeah. Okay, good. That's where your cars are being stored. <laughs> well, we got a new one. So that's why we have to, we need, we got a, it's a Lexus uh, mini Cooper collab. Okay, good. It's uh <laughs> extended cab, <laughs> <laughs> extended cab, but it's all electric. Oh, good. So we, so we had to install, um, you know, what is it? 420. What's the power? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that counts. That's very green. That's very green of you. Yeah, no, I, it's very important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stably, we read for this week, um, Nation of Rebels by Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter from 2004, uh, aka The Rebel Cell. Yes, uh, I think that was its Canadian names. These are Canadians. It's... Uh, I, this is like the fifth Canadian book we've read <laughs> yeah, I know. for this podcast. Uh, so yeah, so um, the book was originally published as a rebel cell in Canada by these two Canadian philosophy professors, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a really odd. It's really odd this book um, because it's it, it's got a U.S. edition that's titled differently. It's titled Nation of Rebels, and it's published as a business book. Oh, is that it's, really? It's what yeah. Is? If you look at the at the um, it's Harper Business is the publisher. Well, you're right. I didn't pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah, it's a business. So it's Harper Business publishes it, but then if you look at um, uh, its cultural studies, is the category that's assigned to it. Um, so I, I think this book, in so I, I'm surprised this book does not have a greater uh, f- um, following uh, because I, you know, I really liked it, and uh, I thought that something like this book would be like kind of seminal. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I was actually thinking that as I read it, it's, you you know, it's written in the early two thousands. So it's had enough time to kind of be uh, prophetic as they say. And, um, you know, it's not completely, and because it wasn't written that long ago, it's not using like crazy examples like Madonna and (laughs) the Simpsons and, and, and everything. And yeah, it, it, at least to me, it seems so many people repeat what they wrote here, but without attribution, not that they have read the book or anything. It just seems like it's, <clears throat> their arguments are kind of in the air and you don't really hear people refer back to them. Not so much. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about why this book isn't more well-known. And to me, it's like, it's just, it seems to have weird marketing. It's got two authors, um, but for whatever reason, the first author kind of gets um more prominence um when you when you when you search for the book um it's published under two different titles it's under a business imprint when it's really a book about cultural studies and i think most importantly um it got terrible reviews from the left the guardian slammed it oh really yeah because the left didn't like it because it's quite a critique from the left of the left right right yep um so i think that's that had something to do with it right i uh, i think the kind of people that you would rely on especially in the early 2000s right Uh to 
kind of bless a book uh, as influential did not. So, so here we are. Here we are. And also, I guess, what, 2003, 2004, this is right before blogs. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah, became yeah, yeah. a thing. And so I bet if it had come out a few years later, it would have been, yeah, they would have had a little blog of their own and all that other good stuff. But maybe we can do for this book what uh, Strike Press did for Martin Gurry. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like pluck pluck this out of uh, obscurity uh-huh. and um, bring it to um, notoriety on the uh, interweb. Yeah, like um, we'll be Plato to their Socrates or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, Stanley. So this was your pick. Uh-huh. Um, tell, tell us what the book is about. Okay, so the title is Nation of Rebels, but the subtitle is Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. So I think that's, that's basically what the book is about. Um, so the authors are trying to explain why counterculture, and this is kind of a term from the 60s, and the young kids may not know what it is, but uh, why counterculture seems to have failed to overthrow the system, the system being in all caps, and um, why it was always destined to fail to overthrow the system. That's what I kind of took from it. So that is the, you know, that's what they're trying to explain. Uh, and then, you know, they kind of lay out a, a, a theoretical basis for it. And then also numerous, you know, chapters with numerous examples from all over society and culture of why the counterculture failed in education and technology, which I'll talk to you about later, uh, <laughs> tourism, <laughs> food, medicine, all these other, um, all these other things. So in, so, a, in, in a nutshell, that's what it's about. Yeah, but I think I, I would go further and say that it's not just that counterculture failed, right? And the, and the subtitle is why counterculture became consumer culture. Sure. It's actually, I think that's kind of actually misleading in a way. It's why counterculture drives consumer culture. So it's not just that counterculture failed. It, 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 it's not that it failed in undoing capitalism. It's a counterculture drives a modern capitalism as, as they would define it. Yep, and, and I guess, I don't know if they wrote the subtitle or that's a publisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's basically, the, the reason is it was always going to fail because it was never really fighting the system. It is the driving, you know, impetus of the system. Like capitalism thrives off of diversity and difference and yeah. change. And that's what the counterculture was. And without realizing it, these people were just feeding the beast uh, so it's, it's no surprise why they quote failed. Yeah. And by the way, you said the system several times now I'm, I'm, you have to impute, uh, scare quotes and all right. caps and yeah. underlines to that. Yeah. 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 Because I think that's, that was another great thing of the book is that it kind of gives a lie to the idea that there is the system or, you know, society, man. Yeah. <laughs> I heard, I, yeah, I kept hearing that. <laughs> Okay. Is that, is, yeah, that, is that from The Simpsons? Where, where do you think we all have that? Society man? I mean, yeah. that, that sounds like um, Otto, the bus driver. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's maybe define the counterculture for the kids. And, you know, so I learned this from this book is that you can trace it all back to uh, Guy Debord. Uh-huh. 
uh, or Guy, I should say, Guy Debord, who is a French um, intellectual uh, philosopher, maybe, I guess, I, I don't know. Um, but he was uh, influential to Marcuse uh, and others. Um, but he, uh, you know, you can trace it back to him. And he was, among other things, one of the leaders of the uh, 1968 Paris, um, what would you call it? Uh, Revolution? Uprising? Revol uprising, protest, whatever. Yes. The 68 generation. The 68, right. And yeah. so his thesis is that uh, consumer capitalism uh, takes all uh, authentic human experiences, turns them into commodities, and sells them back to the people, uh -huh. right? And so everything, so he calls that the spectacle, uh, and nothing is real, right? Everything is a simulacra uh, of, <laughs> of yeah. real experiences, right? Because it's just manufactured simulacra of real stuff that's being sold back to the people, and so the people are alienated. And uh, and so according to, to this critique, and, and, and this, this is like, you know, this is in the water, right? Like this, we, we are brought up kind of just exposed to this idea. Uh, the system, as you say, uh, achieves order through repression of the individual, making him conform, uh, instilling manufactured needs as mass produced desires. Uh, and that what you need to do to kind of, uh, you know, strike back from this is to, uh, reject the system, right? You need to take the red pill. Uh, you need <laughs> yes. to, I mean, literally, right? I mean, that's so they go at length into the matrix and how the matrix is uh, a Baudrillard, um, uh, you know, what's where I'm looking, illustration of Baudrillard. Um, so you have to, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Whatever word you're looking for. Yeah. So um, you got to take the red, red pill, um, you got to wake up. And you have to reject the the system and conformity, and uh, give into your true human desires and instincts, and you know go into spontaneous pleasure, right? So, uh, you know, you have to uh, what is it? Tune tune out, turn in, drop off. What's the, what's the... <laughs> oh the, the Timothy Leary thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is it? Yeah, it's like tune out. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that that whole thing. Yeah, uh, and so further from that, you get the the sort of the inevitable um, conclusion from that is that traditional political activism is useless because the entire system is a corrupt simulacrum, right? That can't be reformed. Right. Uh, you, you can't work with any institutions, um, uh, you know, because the, the problem is the existence of institutions. Is the system is the problem. Yeah. And I guess one thing to, like you said, these are kind of left-wing authors who are trying to write for a left-wing audience. Although oh, I, yeah. would, I would kind of label them as like the dreaded word neoliberal actually, but whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think what, what their problem with all of this stuff is, is people like Marcusa and the rest sabotage the left specifically yeah. because what their argument the new left, I guess you would say, argued against actual like reform, economic mm -hmm. reform, because, you know, it was kind of hard to and boring to like 
start unions and lobby for I don't know work uh, you know weekend yeah. hours and all that other stuff. March on Washington, yeah. take a bus thing, go yeah. to lawsuits. Yeah, that's very difficult. Stuff envelopes. Boring. It's all very boring and like dreary. And we're you know we're sophisticated intellectual types. We're not going to do all that junk. Um, but it, I, that stuff actually gets results. <laughs> but you know the theory became, oh you know having union rights or uh, a weekend or all these other things, health and safety regulations, it doesn't really change the system. So it's pointless. Not that it's not as good as total revolution or something, but you're just wasting your time. It's all fake. It's all a simulation. Uh, People are still enslaved. So it's like asking for crumbs from your slave master. Right. And so Theodore Rozak uh, who I also learned about in this book, who sounded like, <laughs> like, a, like, like a piece of work uh, in the in 60s, um, he made this explicit, right? He was writing about how, uh, you know, basically traditional leftist politics was just rearranging chairs on a Titanic, right? Uh, the traditional reformers are just stooges of the technocracy. Uh, and he basically, and they, they go back to this over and over, uh, they quote him saying that what these people are seeking is, quote, merely institutional change. Right. As if, right. you know, Martin Luther King, um, you know, fighting for civil rights is merely institutional. Right. And uh, he, he's not got his eye on the, on the real prize, which is just I, I don't know what. Right. Because that's part of the problem. It's not clear what the counterculture like what they think is going to happen when everybody drops out. Yes. tune in drop out anyway (laughs) so this is where our our good friend sigmund comes back into the picture Mm. if you Mm -hmm. remember him um so uh, a good chunk of the first part of the book which deals with like the theory of counterculture and all all that good stuff um addresses how the left or certain segments of the left married marx who had kind of eh, an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy concern with like actual welfare and people being poor and miserable and dying um, with Freud, who is concerned with kind of the interior, the psychic and emotional state of of people. And that's really where, at least according to the authors, uh, that that poison pill gets created. Because that's, that marriage of Freud and Marx is what allows you to say, oh, you know, civil rights legislation, like a 32-hour work week, all these other things, they don't matter because what really matters is your interior, your emotions, your id, your superego, because what the system really is, is like an overbearing parent, <laughs> right? It's the, the father, the, the horrible father figure or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they, they take, I don't know if it's Freud's like critique, but they take Freud's observation that overbearing parental figures can create neuroses in people that, you know, start manifesting in, in later life. And they kind of systematize it to, oh, this is what society does. This is the man. This is right, the system. I, yeah, I think, I mean, so again, I would, I would go a little bit further and say that, you know, they explained that f- what, f- what Freud believed was that, uh, that culture is built on the subjugation of human instincts, right? Like yeah. that, that's the point of civilization, right? The point of civilization is to keep, or, or or the way you get civilization is that you keep a lid 
on the pressure cooker, as they say, of our real instincts and desires, right? And repressing them. And only by, because if, if you allowed us to just be our natural selves, you would get a war of all against all, uh, which we'll get to Hobbes in a minute, right? Uh, and, um, you know, and we would all be killing our fathers and screwing our mothers. Um, and so if you do that, you know, you're not going to get any civilizational progress. And so, you know, that's, uh, so for Freud, he kind of, he's kind of like, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Not a, not a pessimist, but a, um, defeatist in this way. All right. Yeah. Because he's like, I, you know, civilization is terrible because it, you know, represses us and creates all these neuroses. Um, but at the same time, if, uh, if we just, you know, took the lid off the pressure cooker and just embraced our basis desires, we couldn't have progress. Um, so, uh, you know, the, and, and what the, um, what the countercultural people did, and I guess this is uh, Marcuse. How do you pronounce it? You said Marcusa before. Is, am I pronouncing it? I'm being a jackass. I, I think, is it Marcusa? I think it might be. I actually don't okay. know. Uh, well, so Marcuse basically says, yeah, that was true maybe at a certain point, but at this point we've got, um, so we've had had so much progress. You know, he introduces the idea of post-scarcity economics uh -huh. to, to reconcile Marx and Freud. And he says, you know, repression is necessary to get mass production and to get us to the mass society, but now machines will do all the work. So we can all be liberated to focus on our basically our base desires. And so now we should take the lid off the pressure cooker because it'll be fine, um, which makes no sense to me, but that's, <laughs> kind, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, and uh, the authors don't really buy into no, Freud either. They're saying they, they do say like, well, this has never actually been like proven or anything. But anyway, right. this is like what fed into the counterculture. And they do posit that while both Freud and then Marcuse and all these other people talked about how civilization kind of represses you, Freud was just like you said, he admits that, well, it's worth it. Like, it's kind of not great, but right. it's, we, we need to do this unless we all want to live in caves. And uh, the new left said, Oh, you know, it's fine, actually. We, like you said, we're in the post-scarcity world, which is interesting for the 60s <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I, guess, I guess everything was fine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, now it's, it's just, this, you know, capitalism might have been useful to get us to this point, but now it is just oppressing us to sell us more trinkets. So right. we, we need to throw off the shackles, blah, blah, blah. Um, right. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the unholy marriage of Marx and Freud there. Yeah. And again, it, it bears repeating that these authors are men of the left um, who want to see an effective left. And they think that the counterculture has totally sidetracked the left project. Um, and again, it's it goes to, you know, it, it basically says that the countercultural uh, outlook has you know, accomplished no political change ever <laughs> <laughs> sure right yeah because it, it gives up in, on practical reform right uh and we'll see in a minute it kind of feeds into its own consumerism and hedonism right uh -huh. and that all social progress they would say has come from within the system right from people yeah. 
working for reforms within the system. And yet, right, like who's cooler, uh, MLK or, Ma- or Malcolm X, right? Right. right. So that's... Yeah, or Bernie or Uncle right. Joe. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so, okay. Uh, do you want to talk about the about mass society because I, I thought that was interesting i, I they kind of um anyhow do you want to talk about mass society <laughs> uh, sure is this uh being normal <laughs> this is when they're talking about that no no I'm, I'm i'm talking about how they attribute everything to uh, to the holocaust oh right yes so the, the the authors point out that you know this kind of critique of common people basically mass society has been around for a fair number of years it's not it's not super new you know they go back to like the transcendentalists in america and other people usually snobs uh who complain about uh, look at these horrible common people um but they say what really changed things was the holocaust and nazism because it it showed that a supposedly sophisticated, modern, possibly the most modern, the most sophisticated country in the world, Germany, um, could basically go insane in a few years, you know, less than a decade, and become a bunch of mass murdering, you know, kind of glass-eyed psychos who listen to a crazy person. Uh, I can't believe that would happen anywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, it, it made a lot of people you know, think about what, what, what are people capable of, you know, in, in the mass kind of communications age, because this was all possible due to like radio and not really television, but, you know, newspapers, radio, that sort of mass thing. media, yeah. mass, mass media in, in that era. Right. So not really TV, but radio was enough. Um, and it made a lot of people scared and start thinking about, the dangers of quote the mass the mass man the uh, the man in the gray flannel suit that sort right. of thing, and that's what really kicked off kind of the theoretical underpinnings of the counterculture. Yeah, and and again, I would go further and say it's not just that it made people think like, oh, this is possible. Uh, oh yeah, that, it made them think that it's it's, it's exact, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's that that basically Nazism is not like an aberration. It is a continuation of the enlightenment, right? Like it's exact, it's, it's, it's exactly what you would get as you get um, more and more uh, capitalism and uh, efficiency and industrialization and mechanization and mass media. You know, the clear endpoint of that is Nazism and the Holocaust, right? And so when you go further from that, the countercultural, um, you know, uh, uh, intellectuals would, you know, looked at the United States and saw it as the further continuation of that, right? Yeah, or at the very least, there's a continuum. It, right. You're not necessarily all, not necessarily leading in one direction, but it's not two separate animals. Like the United States in the 50s and Nazi Germany are closer than people want to think. And there's always that danger that it's going to slide in that direction. And right. in fact, it is very close to it already. And this goes back to, to basically the, I don't know, maybe neoliberal uh, critique of the left, which is it used to be that the point of the left <laughs> was to align with the masses and try to convince them 
that um, you know the capitalists didn't have their best interests at heart, and that et cetera, et cetera. They needed to uh, seek reform. Um, but now, after the Holocaust, the masses were seen by the intellectuals with suspicion, like they weren't to be trusted. That they were actually, you know, maybe someday we can get to that point. But right now, they're part of the system, right? It's like kind of like um, Neo in the Matrix, right? You're part of the Matrix. And maybe we can get you to take the red pill one by one and you'll see the truth and then you'll fight against the system with us. But in the meantime, you know, you're part of the system and, you know, you're fair game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the left kind of became, you know, the stereotypical kind of like right wing conservative opinion in like the 19th century or something is, oh, well, the, the masses are asses. And that's why we have to rule over them, because if you give these people what they want, it'll go crazy. <laughs> so we can't possibly do that. They're too dumb. Um, and, you know, by the mid 20th century, the left intellectuals had embraced a kind of version of that saying, well, if you give them too much power, they'll all just become Nazis. <laughs> so we can't, right. yeah, we can't possibly trust them. Um, um, I mean, the argument is, of course, that they've been brainwashed, but right you know, that's, it's still a, a version of, you know, extreme, like snobbery uh, on their part. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like there's a lot more for us that we can get through in describing yeah. their thesis, right? Like there's, yeah. you know, we could talk about conformity um, and we could talk about uh, what is it, you know, why we have rules and norms, right? Sure. Um, uh, but why don't we, skip that because <laughs> I, I feel like we could uh, people should read this book I, I, i'll just say right now uh-huh spoiler alert yeah it's very good so about half of it like i said is like they really try to explain like here's like from a to b to c here is how the theory developed right they, they don't just call people dirty hippies and like move on um so that's that was really that was really nice and they're very good writers so everything is very yes. clear and non-repetitive a lot of good examples and anecdotes back to mm -hmm. my data. Yeah. Uh, do so. Do we want to talk maybe about then their their critique, which is that counterculture drives consumerism? Certainly, Jern. Go right ahead. So why don't you go? Ahead? <laughs> yeah. So you know, after they set up, you know, their their thesis, um, and it's sprinkled throughout. Mm -hmm. What ultimately the book is about is that these so-called countercultural rebels, uh, rather than rebelling against capitalist society and the man and big corporations and all of that are actually the main drivers of consumerism. Mm -hmm. um, and they give a variety of examples of you know, how that happens and why that happens. Um, but that is like, their main thesis and it's, you, you know, start when I started to read the book, I kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't like hippies. I, I buy it. <laughs> uh, but they do a very good job of explaining like how it works in a variety of different like sectors of the economy and different like cultural niches. Right. Um, yeah. So, so maybe we should talk about conformity just briefly. So part of yeah. the of the countercultural, um, you know, uh, the thesis coming from Gramsci is that society controls people by you know, limiting people's imagination, suppressing their deepest desires and imposing conformity, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is 
you know, consumerism is just imposing conformity on people, but they point out that that's stupid. <laughs> uh, that if, if, if everybody was really conformist, you wouldn't have uh, as much choice as you do. Right. And there, there wouldn't be like people who say, oh, you know, um, Americans are conformist also say, isn't it terrible? We have 30 different brands of deodorant and toothpaste. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If people were truly conformist, there would just be one brand uh, uh, of toothpaste. Yeah. It would be the Soviet Union. It would be the Soviet <laughs> Union. Correct. Where you buy soap right. and, and toothpaste. Yeah. I'm not yeah. Crest or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, so it's not conformity that drives consumerism. Uh, it's, it's basically rebellion and a search for individuality and distinction, which is very important, um, that drives it, right? So, uh, people want to rebel, uh, for the, for the reason, for countercultural reasons, um, uh, the Joneses want to rebel. Uh huh. And so they seek out, um, positional goods, Right. Um, and, uh, as a result, their neighbors want to keep up with the Joneses, which is mm-hmm. normal human instinct, uh, you know, because these, that's the, that's the nature of positional goods. And so that drives further consumerism. And it's just, it's this, it's this treadmill that we're all on. Yeah. Uh, and kind of going back to what you were saying one of the things that I like, if I write in my, if I wrote in my books, I would have underlined it, um, is the critique of mass society mm-hmm. is not the same as the critique of consumerism. That what people are really critiquing when they say consumerism is terrible mm-hmm. is kind of the dull mass society myth almost that like a lot of people have absorbed in this country. And that that's that's where all this confusion comes from, that they associate consumerism with the man in the gray flannel suit, the people keeping up with the Joneses, um, kind of the boring, dull people, like the, what do they call it? The late adopters. Late adopters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they kind of get into this later in the book. That's who they associate with consumerism. But really, consumerism is driven by the early adopters. It's the Joneses. It's the cool people. It's the countercultural rebels who actually drive consumerism. They drive it. But, I mean, I, I would associate the late adopters with consumerism um, because they probably make up most of the consumption. And oh, sure. To keep up with the Joneses. It's just that you can, it's just that the people who complain about the late adopters are the early adopters. Right. Well, that's the, cr- so boring. Yeah, exactly. But that's, I, I think that's, that's where the, the critique of consumerism goes wrong because the, all the blame goes on the boring people. Right. Right. So that I think that's their point is that like you can't critique consumerism and capitalism by making fun of boring suburbanites because they're not the ones who are driving it. Um, they they follow along for like a variety of reasons. And that was also interesting. They, they, the authors talk about how some people um, consume positional goods like in an aggressive manner. Right. So these would be the Joneses. These are like the cool kids, the ones that are actually trying to be different. Uh, or, and that's know. so important. Yeah can, yeah. can I just say, I mean, so <laughs> go ahead. They, they, they talk about, so this is something that really um, like um, uh, was a huge insight for me from this book. And maybe I'll go read this thing. Maybe I don't need to, uh, but they talk about a book 
by another French intellectual, but this uh, seemingly a smart one. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Pierre Bordeaux, uh-huh. uh, who wrote a book called Distinction. And he basically, his, his thesis is that aesthetic judgment, right? So taste, aesthetic judgment is about distinction, right? It is uh-huh. negative in character, right? It's separating out a thing from what it is not, right? So, so taste is about saying this stuff is not bad, like everything else that is tacky and horrible. Uh, and so here's a quote from uh, Bordeaux. Tastes are perhaps first and foremost distastes, disgust provoked by horror or visceral intolerance to the tastes of others. Uh, so for example, in, in music, what you listen to is probably less important than what you don't listen to. Uh, so anyhow, uh, to me, that just sounds very right um, just by just thinking about it. Um, so I don't know. Uh, what, did, what did you think about that? Um, you know, just, you know, we always make these things about ourselves. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I think back to, you, you, do you remember my uh, craft beer phase of a few years ago? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. So, so, oh, come on, be, be nice. Um, so it's that whole subculture. I'll, yeah. I'll just, I just dip my toes in it. I didn't become like a full-fledged psycho. Um, it's, it, it's essentially driven by that. Right. Like yes. it, anything that's sold at like the food lion or Wegmans, mm-hmm. uh, it's different now because it's full of craft beer, but, um, but uh, why is it full of craft beer? Because I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, keep yeah, going, keep going. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But see, but back, back then, right. Yeah. A few years ago, the most crafty craft beer you had was like Sierra Nevada or something like that. Right. And beer snobs would turn their nose up on something like that. So now you have to find the beer that they sell in New Hampshire for one hour every year. And like, this right. is, a, this is a thing people would go to some town in like upstate New York to buy a six pack of some random beer that was quote amazing. And I'm sure it tasted okay, but really what those people were doing and what I was doing is I'm a sophisticated person. I like this fancy and also kind of expensive beer. Everything else is like piss water. And it, it's, it's not the, the, uh, the arrow is going in a, in a certain direction. It's going mm-hmm. from me to those goods. And I make a judgment on how good those things are or how tacky and crappy they are just based on my own preferences. It's not actually anything to do with the quality or the taste of those goods. Yeah. The, the moment the fancy beer that you like um, gets you know bought by, Anheuser-Busch, it just, it's, it's no longer a good, you don't like it anymore. Oh yeah, man. They really let their quality slip. Exactly. I mean, like it totally doesn't taste like it tasted three years ago. Yep. yep, yep yeah. Yep. I got to go to Quebec. They have this amazing <laughs> cider. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's, and you know, I, I kind of want to resist that observation they had because I yeah, kind of want to think like, yeah, but some things are really like not good, <laughs> but like intellectually, I realize that in terms of yeah, some things that are maybe like not as healthy, like I don't think smoking is very good for you or all sorts of things are like probably physically not good for you. Sure. But, that's different, but that's different. It's not, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that rich people do. That's really bad for you too, but we don't call those things tacky. You know, we don't call them low class. It's not the fact that those things are bad for you. It's the fact that we don't do them lower people than us do them 
And this leads to one of my, my questions I want to sprinkle in uh, yeah. through this. So I, I need you to tell me your favorite non-ironically liked piece of kitsch. Non-ironic. Kitsch? Yeah, kitsch. Anything kitschy, but non-ironically, Jerry. I can't, I can't have you talk about <laughs> the Christian rock crusader metal music you listen to that I think you do uh, ironically. That is actually good. No, no, I don't do that ironically. Okay. Um, I mean, so yes, and I mean, so I think I do it ironically to the point that they perform it ironically. Uh huh. They're not truly Christian, right? No. Uh, uh, but um, I guess I don't know. That's you put me on the spot. What about you? I mean, let me think about it. Do you have a? Um, I don't know. I for uh when i used to work out uh <laughs> just like really on non-prestigious like rock from the late 90s and like 2000s yeah um it really gets you pumped right so like there are some so this whole chapter made me think of nickelback <laughs> <laughs> and they're you know they're like one of the most loathed bands also canadian by the way um <laughs> you know everyone knows who they are and everyone and quote everyone hates them except but nobody's ever really heard well but they've sold millions of albums like sure. they're still around the guy did an apple commercial right yeah and like so that means not everyone hates them but bands like that some of their music is actually fun and good to listen to like when you want to like run around or work out right uh, I'm going to have to get back to you um, <laughs> because this section of the book talks about how the only way a sophisticate, like, uh, you know, a yuppie or uh, someone who lives in Arlington, Virginia could possibly enjoy kitsch is if they do it ironically. Yep. They need that, that separation. You know, they put something, they put the, uh, the black velvet painting of Elvis up on their wall, but everyone, you know, knows what they're doing. Right. It's with the winking. Yes, the uh, winking, the constant winking. Yeah. Um, by the way, I loved the story that they told in there uh, to illustrate this point of, you know, taste being, you know, something of this, you know, trying, trying to get distinction. Uh, they talked about a music critic who goes in search of like the best coolest band because everything is like so selling out left and right. And he, he's just not, you know, satisfied by even the uh you know the most indie stuff and so he he's writing this i think it's a book he wrote a book about his search and he finally finds this one band that he just like says this is the best band in the world or the coolest most alternative most indie right um, yeah they'll never sell out they'll never sell out they're called braino <laughs> uh canadian band uh <laughs> and but it comes out through it that the reason was that they were unlistenable yeah they were just terrible they were just like it was this noise it was just horrible where people would go to the concert and like they could barely stand it's like they really wanted to leave <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> yeah um i love that um well that kind of makes me think that you know when i subscribe to the new yorker and i've told you this and they have like the the painting section, the art section. Mm -hmm. And they go on for, 
however many column inches about some amazing piece of artwork. Half the time they don't even show it in the magazine, which I find right. incredible. And, you know, I always wonder, is this actually any good? Or is it something that like a, like Penny could draw? And if you just <laughs> didn't tell people that like a three-year-old did this or like stuck a bunch of metal together and just glued it, um, yeah. you know, this says something about the post-industrial landscape or did a three-year-old just glue this together? Um, how much of that is just driven by it's so ugly? Oh. It's just uh, like ugly or just nonsensical or not interesting. It doesn't really, you know grab you or say anything to you unless you've already been prepped to like here's my bag of ideology and you know art styles and i'm just going to throw it all over this thing and really it's just oh no this is just driftwood that we found on the, the beach <laughs> yeah no i yeah. I, th I think i think like almost all of it is driven by that right they, they talk about how good taste is about being in the know of what good taste is right and they give the the burberry scarf example uh, so, you know, Burberry was this company um, that started, I guess, in, during the wars, and they made uh, coats for the art for the British Army, and uh, it had this pattern, right? So Burberry plaid. Um, uh, anyhow, people, I guess, I'm fam are familiar with Burberry as this luxury brand, and part of it being a luxury brand was this pattern, people who um, got the Burberry catalog, knew what Burberry plaid was, but nobody else in the world could tell Burberry from any other kind of plaid, right? So the point is that you'd put on the Burberry because it was a way for you to signal that you knew that this was cool. And so, you know, you'd be walking down the street and you'd see somebody else with a Burberry and you'd give each other a look like we both know, right? But oh, then- yeah. But then uh, Burberry got too um, popular and then some crazy, <laughs> uh, what would you call her? I think it was, um, if everyone remembers, it was like the British Snooky. The uh, British Snooky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the British Snooky on a reality TV show wore a Burberry bikini all the time on this reality show. Yeah. And that just, you know, so now it's associated with the lower classes and Burberry just took a huge dive. Yeah, I think they've recovered, but yeah. They've recovered. Yeah. I mean, actually, think I don't know if you remember, I don't know if this was true or not, but when Snooki was a thing, a story came out that brands were paying her not to, to wear, me. no, to wear other brands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, Coach would pay her to have like a Gucci purse or something like that, right. or, hand, or handbag, excuse me. Um, because you know they, they knew that among their clientele, seeing that is is not is not you don't want to see that. Uh, so um, can we talk about else? cool? Um, hold on, though. I want I want to talk a little bit more about the Bordeaux stuff. Really, it's so obvious in retrospect, right? Like I knew all these pieces, but it really blew my mind. Um, so here's one piece that, that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, let me quote from the book, if you don't mind. Please. Okay. Uh, Bordeaux's analysis of aesthetic judgment shows how naive it is to think that we can opt out of consumerism and avoid the problems that Veblen diagnosed. And we haven't even talked about uh, Thorsten Veblen. Um, simply by avoiding status seeking and envy. 
so they're saying you cannot try to avoid status seeking and envy and opt out of consumerism, right? They say the sense of distinction permeates all of our aesthetic judgments. What is beautiful or ugly, charming or tacky, cool or uncool. Anyone who cares about style is eo ipso committed to competitive consumption. The only way to opt out is to refrain from allowing any such judgments to inform our purchasing decisions. What do you think about that? So there were a few sections in the book that I kind of want to kind of push back against. And yeah. I don't want to say rebel against, I'll say push back. And this is this was kind of one of them on an intellectual level. I follow the argument and it, it makes sense that unless you become one of these like crazy people that just lives in the woods like Ted Kaczynski and they talk about him mm-hmm. <laughs> later in the book, I guess, um, just completely isolated, just eschewing all contact with anybody, you know, you, everyone has a, like a sense of style. Everyone has, not just the cool people, but even the normies, they, they, they think they know what they like. We can at least say that. And if you're going to exercise that at all, if you're even going to choose between two pair of jeans at the store or just the, the crappiest, cheapest shoes you could buy at Walmart, you're going to engage in consumerism. Um, there's just no way out of it. <laughs> there's no way out. <laughs> and I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> and I kind of, like, I, I have to agree. I mean, but again, like, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing because I'm not like the target of these people, right? I'm not the target of the, uh, of the authors. Um, but I, I tend to agree. I just, unless you become totally isolated, it's just going to be very, very hard to completely divorce yourself from that. And the other danger is if you do completely divorce yourself and become like some Camus rebel or something, you're probably going to end up being an example. <laughs> you will be cool and other people are going to copy you and you'll just be that you'll be. Like, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I think, I mean, that could happen, right? Because yeah. I mean, I th- as a matter of fact, I can think of, I'm not going to mention, I can think of somebody who is treated as very cool, although we would just identify it as uh, monomaniacal maybe, or something else, uh, autistic. Um, Wait, me? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but uh, I think what, what the point they make is that, um, there is a, uh, a level uh, of expenditure below which um, that you that basically that you that you have to spend in order to have respectability. Below right. spending yeah. below that, you're basically seen as trailer trash. Right. Then this is what they call, I guess, defensive positional consumerism. Yes. Yeah. 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 So. Um, so a long time ago, maybe like 10 years ago, Stanley, you and I and some other friends read uh, a book that really had a, a big impact on me as well. Uh, it was called Early Retirement Extreme uh-huh. by Jacob Lundvix Fisker. <laughs> yes. And so the, the point of that book um, is that Fisker is an engineer, um, you know, one of, one of these monomaniacal uh, types of persons. And he just brought an engineering mindset to life and just realized, you know, um, somebody could live um, extraordinarily comfortably 
by the, certainly by the standards of like 1970, right? When uh, these people were, where some of these people, French people were writing, right? But e uh -huh. even by even by modern standards, you could live incredibly, certainly by, by world historical standards, you could live like a king on, you know, like 25K a year, right? Um, like if, if your interests are internal, like, you know, you like to read, you like to camp, you like to, you know, uh, not very expensive things. Um, you can live on like 25K a year super comfortably. Um, and so if that's what you want to do, if you just save a little bit of money, you could, you could retire at, you know, super early age problem with that these people would point out is you will be seen as a crazy person and like you're going to be living probably in a modest home in a low cost of living area right um you're you're going to be biking everywhere not having a you're not going to have a car right and these things make you you know you, you may not have a microwave right whoa 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 right um <laughs> hold on exactly you might not have a netflix subscription right uh, you might get movies from the library. Uh, this makes you basically like a poor person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, I'm hearing these things a like, oh, you're a class person. You're poor, yeah. And uh, and what they're saying is that people can't stand this. They just, if it's within their power, they will not do that. And that's what drives, you know, basically the, the, the uh, uh, social status hierarchy is just this thing that you cannot resist yeah this is the like they said there's two aspects of keeping up with the joneses and this is the part where i guess they quote somebody else right about people living lives of something desperation quiet desperation right yeah, it's like uh, yeah yeah like i can't you, you might very well be fine driving a car from 1995 even now but a lot of people living in suburbia just they don't want that. They can't, they don't want to look like that. And I, I, I understand. I, I get that. Um, and that is what I dislike about consumerism. Sure. Right. So I was reading an article. I should have sent it to you before this. Um, it's a guy who um, grew up poor and is now basically at the very lower end of middle class, right? And he's got a he's got a wife and two kids, and he ex basically is explaining to people, to the rest of us, what it's like <laughs> yeah. to live like that, right? Like to not have a secure job and and have to worry about, you know, where you're going to live, and um, and he he says he wrote this article because his wife um, was at a baby shower. For a friend and there was another friend right who was like um bearing her soul to her saying like i don't know what i'm going to do we're having money problems like we're um we, we can't afford stuff and we can't like we're, we're living um you know like basically paycheck to paycheck and I'm, I'm you know like really having a lot of stress because of money problems and what he reveals is this person who was talking is a doctor and her uh, her husband <laughs> is a doctor. They make uh -huh. a combined income over like 300K, 400K. And the reason is because- Is, the, is that net or is, gross? <laughs> okay. So, um, so that's what bothers me um, about consumerism. Um, and so I, I guess I have like a lot of 
thoughts and questions around that, which is, so one thing is this, one thing that this book made me see, uh, I, I think people who critique those of us who feel uneasy with consumerism, I think what they think is that we are critiquing capitalism, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not, as you know, I'm a capitalist, right? And I, and I don't like the word capitalism because capitalism is a Marxist uh, word. Um, let's talk about markets, right? Uh, you know, I'm a free market guy because it's just, I don't have to explain why, right? It's like yeah. obvious free markets <laughs> uh, are, are the only thing that have allowed us to progress and have as much uh, bounty as we have. You're a praxeologist. Uh, yeah. And yeah. why is that? It's because... Um, markets are non-zero games that is an, it's a, it's a non-zero game right you, and um you have uh mutual gains from trade right so that's what i love about markets but yet embedded in it is um this kind of positional um uh game that is zero sum Right. And yep. I hate the zero sum part of it because so much of what we do in markets, in modern liberal societies is work our asses off producing great bounty, but in order to play this zero sum game, which drives yeah. me nuts when I see people <laughs> doing this. And I hate the idea of every once in a while stopping and catching myself playing that game. Yeah. It's actually negative sum, right? Because we're yeah, we end up in more or less the same place positionally, except we've burned through a lot of money and time, right? So that's what actually makes it like double bad. Is everyone is just going to end up at the same spot after spending thirty years working to the bone? Yep. Um, unless you retire early, like me. Oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> so, so then, so I, so that's uh, something that I want to untangle more uh -huh. for myself. I, you know, I don't, I got to think about this a lot more, so I don't know, but there's, and so then the question is, can you opt out, right? That's just the obvious thing. Okay. Well, if you come to the conclusion that you want to be part of this wonderful market economy, but you don't want to participate in the zero sum piece in consumerism, right? Which is a zero sum piece. Um, can you do it? These guys seem to think it's just impossible. I would point to, um, Fisker and say, well, he did it, right? Yeah, and they would point out that how many people could do this, right? Is like, yeah, maybe you could do it because they they one of the big issues they have is so much of what people consider countercultural rebellion is just antisocial behavior. Yes, <laughs> um, and you know that ranges. There's a spectrum there, but one of them is to totally kind of disconnect from the large. And I'm not saying Fisker is doing this, but a lot of these kind of early retirement people, it is moving to the woods, <laughs> you know, in one way or another, there's a lot of woods involved. No, uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, um, I think it's getting uh, maybe um, greater acceptance sure. in, in different communities, but it's not what it is though, is um, you don't go out with your friends to bars. You say, let's go um, have a picnic. Right. And that's just weird. <laughs> no, it's that yeah. kind of thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, anyhow, I, it, to me, 
I, 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 anyhow, I don't want to get too, too crazy. Maybe this gets into the next book we'll read, uh-huh. but like, look, the Stoics address this, right? Um, I think you have to have an outlook in the world that says that it treats external judgments as external and that it should not affect you. Um, they, basically you let them affect you and that's your choice. And so you can choose not to let them affect you if you do that rationally. It's not a perfect thing, right? It's very hard. I totally take that point that it's very hard and you're going to have to stop yourself every once in a while and be like, what am I doing? Right. But it's, I don't think it's impossible. No, you know, what I was thinking is like, while you were talking is people just have to kind of man up. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, I got an old car. Who cares? Or like, yeah, I like have a tear in my shirt and I sewed it up instead of like throwing it in the garbage and buying another one. Who cares? Um, and but, yeah, that's very difficult for people. I mean, that's like a first step. I understand well, it's not the whole thing, but. Yeah. And I think that um, I think you're absolutely right that most people wouldn't even think to do that. And and they won't. And and then the question is, you know, do, should we judge them for that? Should we judge them for um, making as much money as these doctors made and still being uh, barely above water? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to judge them, but like it, but I'm going to. <laughs> well, you know, I think so, sometimes these things are intersectional, Jerry. Like it sounds like maybe that doctor couple has something else yeah. going on. And, you know, it's not just they like to buy stuff. Like, like you said, almost everyone does. They just seem really bad with their money. And uh, not all doctor couples go bankrupt. Right. right. So like maybe they're just doing it wrong. Um, yeah, I think um, that's true. But but yeah, the, I think what you say is right that. But, I, but, but everybody works. But I, I see people who work until they're like 65, 70 and they don't really like their jobs. Right. But they do it anyway because they have a standard of living to keep up and then they retire and they've got. Uh, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, they don't seem happy. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, totally. I, I totally get that. Um, you know, one of the problems is of course, right. Some jobs, maybe a lot of jobs do require that you present a certain way. Right. Not all of them, but like if you're in a small town or even a normal place, a normal place, like a anywhere, right? If you see a banker and he's kind of dressed like a hobo, like you right. might have questions or like a doctor or a lawyer. If they look kind of scruffy, yeah. you start to think, and maybe that's the system making you think that. But I mean, the logical thought process is this person looks poor because they're bad at their job. Right. <laughs> so I don't want to deal with them. Um, and obviously the more people maybe embrace the early retirement extreme lifestyle or, <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, um, the, the more accepted it becomes. I mean, it's obviously, it's already kind of happened because people dress more casually. Um, right. Just even professionals are not as stuffy as they once were. Um, yeah, but, but they're but competing on, on different levels. But yeah, but like things. you said, they're competing on a, on a different thing, whatever. Uh, craft beer, whatever. Craft beer, fancy new restaurants, mechanical keyboards, all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I know that you're super interested in kind of cracking that nut. So, you know, I look forward to further discussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we've probably gone on for a while, but uh, this stuff is super 
interesting to me. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, there's a, it's, um, it's interesting because I think what happens in a lot of books like this is they have like the first third or half has a lot of meat to it. Uh, like this one does. And then the later chapters are just kind of like making fun of people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they'll, and I, you know, I guess we're running out of time, but I was going to ask you what you thought of their analysis of like technology and cyber libertarianism, but you know. Um. Oh yeah. So I, I made, I, I highlighted some things there to critique, but I, it's not worth it. Like they were just, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> so, so they're right in the short term, but they're wrong in, in, uh, in the long term. Uh, I think so like they talk it's a it's funny right like this one part that shows how dated the book is is when they talk about like spam uh -huh. and they talk about what a terrible problem spam is and how spam gives a lie to the idea that um, we don't need rules um, on the internet that you know like John Perry Barlow's of the world would say that we can govern ourselves online and they're like uh, you know spam became such a huge problem before Congress even acted and it's like as if uh, the can spam act, which is what they're talking about, did anything about spam. It's, it did not, you know, fix the spam problem one bit. What fixed the spam problem was um, further technological innovation um, that was basically caught up to the problem and cracked it and was able to filter it all out. And yet they writing after the can spam act, but before Gmail in particular had figured out spam, they basically say, well, finally, Congress stepped in and imposed order, right, rules. So John Perry Barlow is wrong um, uh, because he was waiting for a technological solution, which we all know is never going to come because this is such an intractable problem. And it's like, no, it got solved, guys. <laughs> so, um, but I, but they're right, right? It's not as, you know, the, the internet is not immune from collective action problems that require rules. Uh, it's just that, you know, um, that, yeah, I, I just thought they're- the Cyber they're libertarians, cyber libertarians or whatever you want to call them, right? They're not against rules. No. Or norms, no. right? That's, no. it's like, we just don't want it imposed centrally yeah. or by God forbid by the government. Yeah, and they, get, they got criticized in the reviews a bit about um, uh, putting up straw men. Mm -hmm. and, and so maybe that's uh, uh, one for sure. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, but look, writing when they did, it, it sure looked like maybe John Perry Barlow was wrong. Uh, yeah. But, you know, what I wanted to finish off with is the, the later chapters where they tackle specific things like yeah. uniforms, um, tourism and travel and a bunch of other stuff. Those are also really meaty. Uh, mm -hmm. I know we say this like at every book we read, but um, they, they kind of continue developing their, the theory of where counterculture went wrong. And, and, you know, they, like I said, they don't just make fun of people. They do make fun of people, but it, it's not just that. So I really enjoyed that, um, that aspect of it. Um, I, I made a little note that like books have a lot of information in them. <laughs> and social media is just rotting my brain because, yeah. you know, I, I know how to read. I've read before and, you know, maybe these are just good books we're picking because we're so smart, right. but you know, they're like really good. They're really dense and it's enjoyable just to kind of follow somebody who can just put together a reasoned argument right? and then give examples and finish it off with a nice conclusion. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, no. Um, so I take it you would recommend this book. I would. Yeah, it, it's very. Some of it is just very cute. It's very, very well like, written. It's uh, very. It's, it's just uh, yeah, that for sure. But um, like dated. You mentioned being dated, but they're talking about like starter jackets and Nike sneakers and right. the LA Raiders, which I think were in LA at some point. Then they moved to Oakland, and I think they're back in LA or maybe Las Vegas. I don't even know, but um, it's just very. It's it's a little bit of a time capsule into like the late '90s, early 2000s, and yeah. that was kind of fun fun to experience. Uh, yes, and there's a lot of stuff that we did not get through, but I would yeah. totally recommend that people read this book. Uh, it it should be like a classic, right? Like, um, I, how do I put this? Right, um, there is definitely a genre of consumerism related books right it's clearly stuff like no logo which they um destroy with facts and logic um <laughs> God, in this yeah. in this book which is awesome uh but you know like robert frank stuff uh robert frank thomas frank mm-hmm. um uh but even within that genre i this book was on my list because i think somebody i knew recommended it to me um but you, i i really hadn't heard this book discussed really at all and I, again i think it has to do with the because it is a critique of the left by the left um and it's a real shame uh i think people should really look into this book anyhow well um i hope we did it justice next week stably next week next week yeah next time i should say uh it's my pick but it's your suggestion wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> well you were like my book sommelier uh oh, great like i wanted to so inspired by this book or you know i've been thinking a lot about the ideas in this in this book we just read uh i wanted to read something about how people are you know kind of focused on that you know can one opt out a question uh i wanted to see to know how people what are they doing to um, deal with um, modern life, right? Uh, and you, you suggested uh, Ars Vitae, uh, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Arts of Living uh, by Elizabeth Lash Quinn, uh, which yes, is the daughter of uh, Christopher Lash. <laughs> who we who's book we read last time uh, uh-huh. so this is getting really complicated and uh and uh, what's the word intertwined intersectional yeah. intersectional um so yeah so it, i i don't know what to expect but i think like she's looking at how people are re uh discovering the stoics and epicureans and the gnostics to try to deal with modern life so yeah and i think i listened to a podcast of it i haven't read it but um in a way i think it's kind of trying to follow in her father's footsteps where she's trying to find she's talking about ways of finding real self-esteem and self-introspection or just introspection that doesn't just involve like narcissism and self-help and right um all the uh the consumerist 
ways of getting to know yourself or whatever. So because uh, it's yeah, right. And in, in the book we just read, they go a lot into what self-help is like. It's all um finding your true self, right? Getting, you know, basically rebelling against the system and finding getting in touch with your true feelings, uh, authenticity and all that. And that's yeah. all anyhow, yeah. It, it's all right. Well, Stably. Jerry, this was fun. This is fun and uh, uh, positive sum. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I, yeah, hope, I hope so. I hope our two listeners think so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Till next All right. time. All right. Bye. Bye.